0: Welcome to C Word, the Conservators Podcast. Today we're talking about salvage. I'm Jen Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South
1: Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Do we have any news, anyone? Uh I have a piece of news uh, that Icon recently has announced their new contemporary art network which is particularly interesting for everyone with very mixed collections and fairly new new objects coming in all of those modern materials and problems that we haven't anticipated mm. so that's very exciting and I have
0: a piece of news. There was an iConnect special recently. There's a draft uh, ISO standard for emergency preparedness and response uh, that's just been um, you know drafted. They are now asking for comments. You can email them and uh, ask for a special comments template. They they'll only take comments on these drafts in certain formats. But basically, you have until the 28th of July to get your comments in uh, if you want to. Uh, have an input into the new emergency preparedness and response standard great yeah so that's oddly oddly topical (laughs) right so today we're talking about salvage and uh first first of all around the table does anyone have any salvage experience in terms of after a disaster of any scale even a small one
1: I have a couple of, um, oh no, it's all wet in here. <laughs> examples. Yeah. Um, one with a store area that thankfully wasn't very used and everything was off the ground more or less, where in an old archway, of course, and heavy rain starts just, you know, peeing through the walls as it does. <laughs> um, and when we found it, it was, it wasn't so much an emergency, but it was, you know an extensive flood pretty much um and it was we we didn't really have appropriate equipment in the area that it was so it was quite difficult to sort oh, like of mop we drink, it all yeah. up and you know once you've started mopping and you've emptied two buckets already and there's no visible difference at all it's quite mm. soul-destroying um but we did the setting up dehumidifiers thing and you know emptying those regularly and everything and it was fine um, and nothing was damaged so it was great um the second example is one of those you know temporary gallery spaces and of course the loo upstairs has leaked and oh, oh no of course it's over the all of these cases and um you've got a call at like seven thirty on a sunday morning like can you come in and mop all this you know poo water up these oh, like, oh good uh, and That's would, some health and safety concerns yeah right exactly there. exactly but you know we kept everything all you know gloved up and clean mm. and everything and that that was mainly fine the c- the top of the cases hadn't really suffered at all the problem was that the leak had happened just next to the cases from the ceiling and then because of the slope of the floor run underneath all the cases which were not easy uh. to move and had they been easy to move were full of objects so you know you'd either have to try and take everything out of the cases which were not easy to open in themselves and dry the floor completely or uh you know put bits of cloth and stuff underneath and try and do it that way but it was fine as well as well and we just checked it every so often yeah anyway that's not very exciting it's more like oh no it's gross
0: <laughs> yeah well these things are often gross uh, Christina how about you
1: uh yeah m- more
2: floods <laughs> yeah <laughs> um is, is the first thing that comes to mind and um a couple within the space of a couple of years in the same institution in the same storage area caused by the same uh drain getting blocked <laughs> oh, <laughs> rather no. than, disappointingly uh but The first time um, there were some boxes of papers that had been left on the floor that were damaged and we sent them to uh, the institution I was working at had a a contract with Harwell Document Recovery Services. Oh, yes. So we were able to send them off to them and just let them deal with it. And then the insurance people and loss adjusters and so on all kind of fought it out about who was going to pay for it. But the second time, because of this, we'd actually put... Um, we'd had a policy of absolutely nothing on the floors um, and we'd also put lots of um, things up on pallets and battens of wood and that kind of thing. So, um, and luckily the flood when it happened was only about three or four inches of water. So the pallets were sufficient to keep everything off the floor. So there was actually pretty much no damage the second time and we were able to concentrate more on kind of getting everything dried out and borrowing dehumidifiers to kind of get the local humidity down and that kind of thing Mm, excellent thinking about it and I don't know this quite counts as disaster recovery and salvage and so on but I was thinking about we I've I've (laughs) been in a couple of institutions that should possibly remain nameless when there have been quite (laughs) big accidents with objects
0: interesting actually uh,
2: resulting in damage to objects and in one case nearly quite catastrophic injury to someone involved in this because oh wow it sort of strikes me we don't normally kind of count that in terms of um uh, we we don't normally count that as disaster in the same way no but actually it was it was pretty disastrous and we had to think on our feet and sort of think well okay how do we get back from this we need to make sure we're kind of photographing the area so we can work out you know how to Mm. recover this in in, i i can think of at least two and possibly three cases of this happening and every time it was associated with installation for an exhibition oh, no, so you can make it out what you like yeah. um, because that's a time when people are moving objects around um, often you've got several teams of people moving objects sometimes around people can be a bit time. stressed yeah yeah and and you don't always coordinate that moving very well and um things like people haven't always checked that the glass shelves in the new showcase have been uh, secured properly before putting objects uh, on and dear. so you get all the shelves oh, dear, dropping yeah, yeah. through a bit the <laughs> <Yes>. yeah <laughs> or um in another case it was people trying to move a very big object but not planning it properly yeah um and the object then kind of toppled over and luckily didn't hurt the person who was underneath it um when it fell but
3: mm, yeah. um
2: so I'm, I'm thinking that's that was actually pretty disastrous. That's possibly more that disastrous than the floods like I've encountered. The sort
1: of, you'd need to take the same sort of measures and the same kind of recovery process as salvage as you would consider traditional salvage. To what, be well,
2: familiar, yeah, so, so you do, and and the recovery from that kind of incidents, I think, is more successful if you're better able to sort of salvage it if if your salvage response is better so you know not having people going oh my god oh my god and scurrying around and clearing (laughs) everything up and so on but actually clearing the area getting the conservators in making sure that things are photographed and documented and so on before you touch anything and then planning how you're going to recover the bits of object how you're going to document it all that kind of thing
0: yeah that's a a really good point actually yeah we don't really consider that uh like other emergencies especially not perhaps involving colleagues
1: uh yeah (laughs) no i think you're onto something there with the the way we think about um uh i think it's a good way to start thinking about it isn't it because it could really change how we deal with the more well the less external factor disastrous happenings in museums Mm, yeah um Personally, I've been
0: involved with minor floods and that sort of thing. Mostly it's been from above. It it hasn't often been a case of something flooding from the bottom up. It's been things coming through a leak in the ceiling and it's a big leak and it's pouring down and there are books underneath. You know, that sort of thing, right? Um So that's... I suppose I'm quite at home with creating air tunnels <laughs> for uh drying out books and paper materials so i've i've not I've not uh been involved in like a major incident or anything. It's been kind of a small to medium scale disaster response uh if anything disaster response always makes it sound like it's huge like you know the entire building is about to collapse in your head or something, and it's not quite that bad. We of course use very dramatic language with this sort of thing, but salvage salvage can be little things as well. Another thing that we don't
2: always include in disasters and so on is um, pest infestations and sort of on a a massive scale. Oh, that's true. But in another institution I worked in, the previous conservator, luckily not me, um, had um, discovered that they'd they'd had lots of things in storage quite long term. And when they went to look at them, there was a massive, massive moth infestation. um, And and they're kind of... um, like you you open a box and a thousand moths fly out That's everywhere and then you're kind of struggling to put the lid back on Creepy. before they just kind of get everywhere kind of thing. But recovery from that involved freezing absolutely everything that could be frozen. Um, and even when I started working there, and it was a few years after this, um, things that couldn't be frozen were still wrapped in plastic and quarantined and so on.
1: Oh, wow. Mm. So it was a really, really sort of long-running um... Yeah. gross
0: yeah quite gross um
1: we've not talked about fires we have not talked about fires i suppose that well i think it's worth saying but it's worth saying that we record this um four days after the um really terrible grenfell tower fire um so if there's any listeners who are seriously disturbed or have had by this or very upset and don't want to listen to anyone talking about fire disasters right now. Then maybe give it a you know a month or so and until we'll we'll be releasing this in July. But um, just as it's all fresh in our minds, it might be worth just bringing that up. Mm, that fire indeed. disaster is pretty. Um, it's it's a real upsetting thing, to everyone upsetting, right now, yeah. and and it is upsetting. It's
0: of course very traumatic when it happens in museums as well, or. Uh, historic properties. Uh, obviously, it's a hugely traumatic thing for people, even if it's just a place of work. I mean, everyone always thinks, obviously, we'd be des- de- devastated if it was our home. But even a place of work can be really traumatic if it, you know, goes up in flames, which is an interesting thing.
2: Exactly. But um, most recently, Clandon Park mm. um, suffered a devastating fire. Um, and prior to that as well, um, our park is yeah. the other sort of famous one.
1: Of course, yeah. Yeah, and they were both sort of devastating weren't they as in Mm. large scale rather than just a part of them
0: so thinking about training options i i feel like i've had quite a lot of emergency planning training Mm. i feel like that's really been um something that's really solidly been supported by my previous employers for example um i'm also familiar with some ways of testing it so for example tabletop exercises is something i run both in-house and with other people And, um, actually, I gave a talk about that quite recently at the annual gathering of the Rapid Response Network, which is a regional membership organization working in Yorkshire and Humber. Um, and they're, they are a kind of support network where you pay a fee and you get access to these huge emergency kits. So if something happens at your premises, you can go and get a kit um that that's kind of a more than you could possibly probably provide in-house so it's it's quite a nice um network that's uh, a really good support structure for if something happens to say a small museum uh where your in-house kit might not be enough really but yeah so i gave a talk about um tabletop exercises at their annual meeting just a few weeks ago um So that's kind of where I'm at with training, but I've never done salvage training. I've done a bit of getting things wet and having a go, but not a full scale thing, which is something, uh, Christina, that Sophie Rowe talked to you about, right?
2: Yeah. Um, And we'll uh, listen to her talking about her experience of going on that course uh, right now. When it comes to salvage and disaster recovery, theory is useful, but prior practical experience is completely invaluable. Historic England, in association with West Midlands Fire Service and other conservators, runs a very practical three-day course that provides hands-on experience of removing objects from an incident location, assessing their condition, and following appropriate first aid treatment and documentation procedures. The course has taken place at various locations, but is currently being run in Handsworth, just outside Birmingham in the UK. I spoke to Sophie Rowe, conservator at the Polar Museum, about her experience of attending this course recently. So, Sophie, you've been on a salvage training course? Can you tell me a bit about
4: that, please? I have. I went on the course which is run by Historic England uh, in the West Midlands. uh, Location varies, but it's always held on a fire station somewhere in Birmingham. The most valuable thing about this course, and it's brilliant, is that essentially they set up an exercise for you whereby they fill uh, a building with... Stuff from charity shops, but about three and a half thousand things from charity shops, and then objects, (laughs) objects. Of course, it's a frightfully valuable collection. Um, And then they um, essentially pour water all over it with hoses, and then they send the fire service in. Um, and so essentially they mock up a situation in which you have an actual disaster going on um, and the fire service have been called and you are, as Conservatives, supposed to coordinate what the fire service do or don't do to help you and then yourselves salvage everything from this Essentially, burning dark building, um, and it is the most extraordinarily useful thing to experience because I think no matter how many you know buckets full of water with books and photographs and so forth you, you play around with, nothing can prepare you for the chaos of trying to get three and a half thousand things out of a building in a small time frame, um, and how you then manage a very diverse group of things, so that I mean the objects that they put in there include furniture, great chests full of china and glass pictures. Uh, quite heavy sculpture lots of books photographs textiles clothing you know there's a full range of artifacts in there um, and you've been given a list which includes the priority items uh, and then you have real firemen who are also on an exercise but a slightly different sort of exercise than one you're on and that you have to give instructions to and how you coordinate that exercise and Also, learning what you can and can't expect the fire service to do is the most invaluable piece of emergency training I've ever had and I highly recommend it. So what can you expect them to do? I think the thing with the fire officers is that they are people who get things done and they are used to a chain of command, they're extremely well practiced at what they do. one of the things that they do in this course is they actually send you into the building, um, having filled it with smoke, and you put on um, a fire officer's uh, very heavy kind of fireproof suit and a mask, and you're you're breathing oxygen through a, an oxygen mask, and you all kind of trail through the building in a sort of chain. Um, and I think it's to, and you've not been into this building before, and it's still, obviously there's no suggestion you would ever have to go into a burning historic property in this kind of situation and for yourself and rescue things, but it gives you a tremendous appreciation of what the firemen have to Mm. contend with so when you tell them I want you to go in there and I want you to rescue the third Rembrandt on the wall from the left if you've been into a smoke-filled room and you've got a tiny visor and you've got a bit disorientated it's just utterly unrealistic Mm. (laughs) to expect them to find things in that way and I think when you've had that experience and you go back and think about your own collection and how you can make it more rescuable by the firemen. But I think it also teaches you to think quite carefully about what you ask them to do. You can't necessarily expect them to handle things appropriately unless you've given them very clear instructions. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole other issue is about chain of command and making sure that you are giving the information to the right people um, in that group. And so that, you know, the people who need to know have the information that they need to have. Um, and other than that, they are extraordinary. I mean, they, they get things out really fast. They're very strong and they're very willing, but... There will be some limits to what they can take on, of course. I think Um, talking to other
2: people who have done this course, um, they were surprised by how quickly um, the firemen were able to salvage things from the building. And then they found that they were unprepared to deal with this kind of torrent of stuff being rescued
4: yes and i think one of the things that breaks down really quickly is the documentation so mm-hmm. you know one of the things that you're supposed to think about of course is where things come from and where are they are going to and kind of tracking the movement of items and you very quickly reach a point where it's all coming out in a great wash and you haven't got time especially if the weather's bad by the way my top tip is they run this course four times a year and try not to go in february because you all get wet and it's really <laughs> i went in october that was just about fine but the ones who go in the winter oh you get wet one of the things they make you do is Divert water. Actually, I mean, they pour water at you and um, all over the building, and you are supposed to divert it. And if you're doing well, they'll turn it up and just make it, you know, wetter and wetter. Divert it. With <laughs> you to divert or... it using yes, using ladders, tarpaulins, uh, barriers, various things to try and kind of keep it away from your collections areas. So it's extremely practical. This course. Uh, it's. I don't want to say it's not for the faint-hearted, but I think it, it's really helpful for getting you into that spirit of siege that you would probably be in if, if you had a situation like this in your collection. Um, what I would also say is it is very much the value of it is for salvage. I think it's in terms of your emergency planning and your structures, it's really worth having thought about that in quite a lot of detail before you get there so that you can get the most out of the course. If you go with not an idea about it, this isn't the one for you. This is the one for you. If you've thought a bit about how you might approach an emergency or how you might use your people, then it will really help you to, to think about whether that's really the best way and give you some very practical experience in managing a situation. Um, so do they teach you the basics of salvage for different types of material or is it more that you need
2: to know that stuff and then you just get to experience it in practice? No, the they
4: will part? They will teach you about salvage for different kinds of material. I mean, we spent, uh, I think, a morning looking at all kinds of different things and we got excellent notes on that. The bit that they won't teach you exactly is how to structure your uh, salvage team or rather they do give you that information but... If you've never thought about it before, it comes very thick and fast. So that's the part that's really worth having had some thoughts about, at least, and, and you know, read up a bit about before you go. And then I think you're in a very good position to, to take the advice that you're given about the kinds of people you need. You need more people than you think you need, actually. Mm. That's the short answer to this. So do you feel more confident about dealing with some sort of catastrophic fire emergency in your museum i obviously enormously hope that it never ever happens but yes i do Um, and i think it also gives you some ideas for things that you might do as kind of bite-sized sessions for people back in your institution who haven't had the chance to go on this to help them get confident because i think if you're faced with a with a you know a horrible mess and everything is soaking wet and it's all falling apart it's it's very intimidating actually and and so to have some basic ideas about how you would approach it is so so helpful and a lot of our staff haven't really spent very much time thinking about emergency salvage but potentially would be involved if there were an incident Um, and so getting them to the point where they feel okay wet books i know what to do really valuable thing to learn definitely
2: and if sophie's experience has convinced you that you should also go on this course here's a little more information about how you can do that The course is run by Historic England and is called Salvage and Disaster Recovery. It runs over three action-packed days and takes place four times a year, usually in February, May, July and October. The cost is £505 per delegate, which includes all teaching, buffet lunches, one evening meal and two nights B&B accommodation. You can book by emailing emergencyplanning at historicengland.org.uk and we'll also put the course website in our show notes so you can find more information there. If you're not able to get to this course in person, or if you're outside the UK, we've also found an alternative course running very soon called Salvage and Recovery of Cultural Heritage Collections. This is an online course, so you won't get the same practical experience as on the Historic England one. It costs $400 and is taking place on the 17th of July, Again, we'll put all the details in the show notes for this episode.
1: I think I always say this after the interviews, but I found that really, really exciting as an idea. It sounds like such a good course. Oh, it um, does. I really, <laughs> really want to go, but I've wanted to go for years and years, I know. And years and years I think when I heard the cost, I thought, oh, Jesus, how can it be that much? But then actually hearing what it's like. And, and also it's three days. Exactly, yeah. And the level of sort of a... Uh, deep practicality and attention you get it's, is, it's, hard it's really cool. amazing yeah it's hard um, and I'm impressed that they've thought so much about things that you don't really you don't really think about when you're thinking about a disaster and oh god either everything's on fire or everything's soaking wet you're not automatically unless you've been on training like this going to think about the quality of your communication with the emergency services that you're dealing with which is obviously extremely important because it means that you know what you're talking about you know how to communicate with people and you're not going to get shirty with them essentially if they do something that you would consider wrong if you've not communicated the right way to do it so that's really really interesting um and i want to go on it
0: i do too it would be lovely it's a lot of money though i yeah i don't even know how i would find that money
1: <laughs> no i feel like first day i've got to go i'd like to go on a first aid course that would also be good and then maybe this is next in line mm, yeah. There's possibly some practical training in between for actual conservation bits. Yeah. How hardcore are we? We just totally want to go into this like smoke-filled building. I, I know. know. Yeah. I know. I want to wear a giant suit. I don't know if I do actually. That seems a bit, a bit scary. <laughs> but I, I, I really liked that they add the perspective of
0: this is what it actually looks like when they're inside it. So even though you've said on our salvage list – are these objects, go and take them out. Um, That can be really, really, really difficult. Now, this is something, okay, so we've tried to implement this in our emergency planning where I work now, is that we've tried to have the emergency services come over and we've talked them through the salvage list, for example. So we've gone, well, these are the things that will be our priority to save, if at all possible. And they can then give their opinions, such as, oh, well, we might try to put a fire blanket over that because it's too big we wouldn't get it out. Yeah. Um or that's too heavy we couldn't possibly we'll put a fire blanket over it and you know just or we would try to save that room we would try to block it off somehow uh, if that was an option. Um it's really useful to have those conversations but at the same time you do have to realize that um I guess what I'm trying to say is there might be a different fire department that responds to your fire or it might be a completely different crew. Yeah. Um, it might be that it's so many years down the line that they don't even they've never been themselves it it's,
1: it's all the infrastructure of the fire services has changed yeah as we don't and also they they, the they
0: have terrible cuts as well so they're losing exactly. people all the time so it's um it it's a great exercise to do and you should have emergency services come out and look at the things uh look at your building to begin with and where there might be uh special safety concerns like where do you keep all of your chemicals <laughs> in this house? <laughs> yes. um, and you should make them aware of what what you want to save, but at the same time, I think it's super important to know that it's a really different situation when the building is on fire and they might not be able to even see or remember or know what to get. so scale down your expectations accordingly,
1: maybe. <laughs> the other day I read the uh, emergency plan for my new for my new job mm-hmm. um, and it was the first emergency plan I'd read really in detail because obviously I knew we were recording this and I thought well obviously I'm not going to be able to remember it all in the event of an emergency but that's why you um, had the plan yeah exactly and I'm not on the emergency team as it is um but sorry you're not on the emergency team yeah it's because I'm very
2: new ah right not uh, but there are conservators on it
1: oh yeah 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 sorry I should make that clear yeah there are um the conservation team is on it and I suppose by default i am on it as well but i've not had we've not got to that bit yet because i'm still super new Mm. um and the thing that i like particularly about the emergency plan that i read is the maps to be honest the maps the um and the the descriptions of where key objects particularly key objects on gallery are held because they are very much you know it's not like oh case b over there kind of thing it's it's this is the case that you will find, and it looks like this, and you go this way, kind of thing. So, I found that really, really interesting. Um, plus, I like building plans. Mm. So, that was really cool. Excellent. Yeah, I think um, this is uh, as,
0: right. So, I've, I've occasionally um, liaised with emergency services, and often the building plans can be a bit of a bugbear for them because often it's a hugely detailed plan drawing that someone's taken from a file and they've downscaled it to be a4 size and then they're they're hoping that everything's still legible even though it clearly isn't with the naked eye and then they just hand that over and go and that those are our building plans and they go that's no use to me love um because god um yeah so sometimes it's worth looking at building plans god i've gone into four emergency planning good That's advice it. giving i'm so sorry people uh, sometimes it's worth just looking at your building plans and making sure they're legible enough and simple enough and clear enough you might have to draw it out again <laughs> uh, you might not be able to get you know the like terrific jpegs that you have of the really 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 detailed blueprint of the building and just cram it down in size because it might not be useful to them but the best way of checking that is talk to your fire department um you know talk to firefighters and hand them over a copy of it and say is this useful to you because if it isn't we need to change it
1: that's a very good point i hadn't thought of that i suppose i was looking at it on a computer screen so it's much easier yeah, to, yeah exactly you can to to imagine, imagine the, uh, and all that yeah.
0: stuff and uh, mm. yeah you can't do that on a piece of paper
1: i've learned a lesson
0: here <laughs> 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 terribly sorry everyone that got really boring but yeah so i really enjoyed hearing about sophie's experiences and i still really want to go
1: yes yeah, definitely closer to the top of my development list than it was before
0: mm. can be difficult to make that happen with employers though it's quite a lot of money and actually what they do are oh, they used to say this i don't know if they still do they used to say that you should send two from your institution um because this is a team effort and it's not good if one person has the knowledge yes um because a they might take different things away from it and b they might leave so um it's it's always a good idea to send two people from an institution to have uh the salvage training together
1: and then you're laying down a grand automatically.
0: Yeah, exactly. So mm. you're looking over a grand and that's not including travel and accommodation, I think. And th- that's quite a lot of money for a lot, a lot of people. So it's tricky.
2: On the 23rd of May 2014, a fire broke out in the basement of the Glasgow School of Art. The fire quickly spread, causing widespread damage to the West Wing of the Charles Rennie McIntosh building and especially to the famed McIntosh Library. The damage was severe, and included books, furniture and historic interiors, as well as student work. As word got out on social media, conservators in the area rushed to volunteer their services for the immediate salvage attempts. But what happens after the fire is put out? I spoke to Natalie Mitchell, a conservator based in Edinburgh, about her involvement with the salvage of objects from the GSA building in the months following the fire.
3: So, um, my name is Natalie Mitchell, and I am a conservator for AAC Archaeology, and we're based in Edinburgh. So, um, AAC Archaeology were invited to help with the salvage work alongside another archaeological company called Kirkdale, and we helped process the uh, salvage material from the Glasgow Macintosh Library.
2: Mm -hmm. So,
3: what kind of material was that? So, um, being a library, it was preliminary. books and a lot of the furniture, so furniture um panelling um, from the library, so lots of um, wooden structural pieces um, and as well as that sort of typical um, things you'd expect to find like um, sort of fixtures and fittings, metal, sort of cabling, pipework and other kind of um, structural pieces, I'd say, yeah, so um, so predominantly, predominantly from a material point of view it would have been sort of paper, paper and wood were the main... Main materials. So the project ran for about two or three months, I believe, and that was alongside the archaeologists excavating. And it was basically um, the project was to, to just get all of our work complete so that at the end of the um, project, GSA had all of their objects that had retained, packed, and ready to um, sort of go on to the next steps of what they wanted to do, which is kind of basically investigate. Um, what they wanted to sort of have restored or sort of used to investigate to go on to the next sort of stage of the project with kind of possibly um reproduction and that kind of thing. So um, so yeah, so our, our, our work, our involvement was quite just a, a really really intense sort of project to basically facilitate everything that needed to be removed from the library, being removed and recorded and safely packed and allowing GSA to be able to sort of look through what's being brought out because obviously after the fire broke out you know sort of um you could it, it was just such a catastrophic scene that it sort of needed the process of, of everything being meticulously removed and recorded to find out what was there to be sort of laid out for them to see what they had so that was really kind of like where our skills came in and just sort of um identifying materials and identify the condition and sort of guiding them on what would be useful what what they can still do with the materials they had yeah
2: and the fire itself was pretty devastating. What kind of condition were these things in when you got them?
3: Unfortunately, the fire did affect the side of the Macintosh building where the library was the most, and so the library was really damaged. Um, the uh, wood was very heavily burnt, so a lot of the pieces had um, very charred um, exteriors. Some had sort of some wood remaining in the middle, but um, a lot of the pieces were either completely burnt, there was nothing left, or just a kind of a child remain um and similarly a lot of the the paper uh, was very damaged and um, what was left was either very very fire damaged or very very damaged um as a result of being so damp from the fire being put out so you know it's sort of very wet and moldy sort of all those sorts of issues you get with things being in damp condition for a while so the condition was was generally poor
2: were you able to freeze things or stabilize them temporarily until you got around to treating them
3: yes they so, um basically our remit was to just help stabilize everything as best we could and um, in the sort of intermediate part before any sort of i suppose more kind of interventive conservation work could take place and um, so um really it's sort of the first aid measure we had um a freezer in place just down the road from the library so um any of the sort of special books that are collected could be frozen immediately so we wrapped and frozen. so you know we had freezing facilities on site so we could freeze anything and so obviously we had that from the outset um with this thought in mind that we might find things that would need freezing, and um, just anything that you'd expect to need sort of first aid for damp material like that so we had obviously lots of puffing sheeting and that kind of thing also particularly because the books and um, all the material was having issues with mould because it had been damp for a while because there was a small period of time between when the fire was extinguished to when um we was able to come on site and start working and um, obviously that was plenty of time for things to start going mouldy so um yeah so we had everything we needed to either work with the objects safely whilst in that condition or um a freezer so that we could freeze them because they're damp but also because of the mould issue as well. Mm-hmm. What at what point did you get called in were you
2: involved in the immediate recovery
3: um so no we were actually um called in once a salvage plan had been put in place so um the immediate recovery although this is not an exhaustive list i know that um obviously the staff of gsa were a great help there was a lot of volunteers that i think icon made a call out list for that came and helped on the day and um also historic environment scotland um helped out a lot on the day as well and obviously like fire rescue service themselves so they were sort of in the immediate aftermath, but um, our role and the archaeological um, team's role was further down the line when a proper plan had been put in place as to how they're going to go about excavating the library and sort of sorting through the finds and what was to be done with everything.
2: AOC is um, an archaeology and conservation company. Did you find that having that kind of background in archaeology was useful then when it came to the kind of excavating?
3: Yeah, definitely. So... Um, basically, whilst it was, um, it was actually a company called Kirkdale that did the excavations on this occasion, um, the principles that were used sort of for the excavation were exactly the same as any excavation on site. So um, basically the room, the library room, was um, split into grid squares and um, everything was excavated to the grid squares and anything that came out was given a context number and from that point it was then handed over to... Um, the AOC stuff, and we basically recorded things as if we were finding finds on a site. So we allocated things, finds numbers, we recorded them all in spreadsheets, we photographed everything, um, described, g- gave a kind of con- condition recording, um, and then we was able to sort of then um, pass on to uh, GSA, the client, sort of um, what condition things things in, and they was able to make a decision as to kind of what happened to it. From that point onwards.
2: Yeah so how much were you finding you were able to, um, how much difference were you able to make to the objects that were coming to you? Um, you said some of them were in pretty poor condition.
3: Yeah well um, as with any excavation when we had um, difficult objects or things that were sort of stru- structurally challenging and um, we was able to use our conservation skills in assisting the archaeologists in lifting the objects so similarly like as you might have um on an archaeological site where you might be needing objects and um, block lifting or do that <laughs> We're basically using those skills to help assist in removing objects from the library and sort of using supports and sort of make sure that everything's sort of structurally sound before they're lifted out and also um sort of basically just giving other things sort of structural support we did a lot of um packing of the retained items at the end of the project and again it's sort of a similar sort of um, skill set that we use for packing any objects that we would do and um, bearing in mind that they were exceptionally fragile so it was um using the most appropriate materials that we could and making sure everything's well supported um, and sort of just standard archival procedures in the packing process as well making sure that everything had the box lists and that kind of thing and um, so it's generally sort of the same skills that we apply to our day-to-day work but just in a totally totally different environment <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then generally also, as I said before, um, we had a lot of issues with health and safety things. Conservatives were just naturally quite aware of things, challenges like um, like the mould I mentioned before, like dust and particulates and every, any other possible concerns you might have. I mean, it was okay on this occasion, but, you know, being aware of hazardous materials such as asbestos um, and sort of making sure that um, we always have sort of appropriate PPE but also making sure that the materials were dealt with appropriately so that they would be sort of safer for anyone to handle or look at in the long term so that was a case of sort of treating the mold on site um, uh, and that kind of thing so so making sure that the archaeologists and the other kind of people um, that coming to look at the material were aware of um, the condition of the objects and kind of that although the objects aren't as fragile that sort of there can be a hazardous nat- nature to them and um, sort of you know making sure people were wearing gloves and face masks and that kind of thing when they're looking at them. So, what
2: what did you find the most sort of challenging aspect of this project? I mean, apart from having to get it all done in two or three months. Uh,
3: the most ch- it, I think it's just it's just something that's so different. Well, I'm sort of able to say now, on reflection and hindsight, oh yes, it was just using like the sort of conservation skills that we used <laughs> in projects at the time when you're kind of facing something that looks this is like that you've never dealt with before, um it it really feels like yeah such a challenge but then once you sort of start to get on with the process and you realize actually you're just kind of um using sort of multitasking and using all the skills that you do and using your day-to-day job I think it's um it, it wasn't quite so scary I think the main challenges were probably um obviously dealing with practical challenges such as um access um sort of working with a large team of people obviously it's not just the archaeologists we're working with those uh sort of site contractors um architects curators lots of other people that you're dealing with so just a um it's sort of quite challenging in that there's it's not just a case of getting on with it there's a lot of um sort of things that have to be organized and put in place like mm-hmm. for example just making sure that the the library itself is safe and secure for people to go and work in and um, so that was quite challenging sometimes um you know if the weather's too bad or high winds are up it can put a stop to work and that kind of thing so mm. just day-to-day logistics and making sure that everybody's got something to do and that the workflow is um going well and um, as i said we was working alongside the archaeological team so basically as they're retrieving the finds we were processing them yeah it's making sure that you have that kind of production line of work to constant consistently get on with um so just from a kind of logistical point of view that was quite challenging and because it's quite it was just an unusual setup but you know sort of just making sure that everything runs smoothly um I think once you've sort of got used to the material types and the damage um that was not so bad sort of once you had all the sort of safety protocols in place and we knew what we're doing that wasn't quite so challenging but it was um I suppose quite an emotional job um I think not just your own emotions and seeing it, but seeing the emotions of everybody that's really attached to the property as well. I think that was quite Mm. difficult because obviously usually when we're working on things in a lab, you don't necessarily have the person that might own or have known that object sort of looking on it and sort of feeling those emotions that you might have, but sort of being there, working on site, seeing how much it impacted everyone was really um, quite different. And I think um, think it was quite um, a privilege, I suppose to be able to to help like in that kind of way I don't think it's a very often that you get to do that sort of thing and I think it was really um well it was a really sad situation it was really nice to be able to be like to be able to feel like he's really helping and when you did occasionally find objects that you didn't expect to find or you know some things some things that were just in perfect condition for example the the lanterns that um the lamps that hang from the center of the ceiling had, Um, there's a lot of glass that was recovered and some pieces of glass that were just complete and in perfect condition and just Mm. as they started to come started to come up it was really kind of invigorating to find things that had been preserved and things that you just think should never have survived survived and so that was really like motivational and I think it kind of although it's challenging there were long days and we worked through winter and I think some days there was snow blowing through the windows um you you had like lots of sort of things that just really kind of kept you motivated and it's really uh, like really rewarding actually yeah it's good um Hmm. yeah and I think um just getting to use all your skills and really get do a job that calls in every part of your your knowledge and you have to really think on your feet and no day was ever the same so yeah it was really really actually really a really rewarding project to work on
2: is there anything you wish you'd known at the start or that you you kind of learnt that you hadn't known before
3: um tying labels onto charred bits of wood (laughs) (laughs) um that was quite challenging (laughs) little things like that it's little little practical things that you think like oh you know it's fine we'll just label these and you know your labels are constantly wanting to fall off or you know that kind of stuff um oh, the packing the packing you know packing is always so, so time consuming of any large project if anybody's worked on large archaeological assemblages or large things like that you know the packing always takes longer than you think and this was just so challenging because of the nature of the objects were so fragile like particularly sort of packing the burnt furniture and that sort of thing so I think the packing was probably actually the most challenging thing and in hindsight if I realized how challenging it would have been um, may have been a little bit more prepared for it but um, I think that was probably actually yeah, the most challenging thing. Of the <laughs> Anything you would do differently? Um, I, think, I don't know. I think probably if we were challenged with doing it again, probably things would come back to you and you'd think, oh, no, I've done that before. I think you know I'd do it slightly differently. But off the top of my mind, I think everything um, that came up was so, although we had a plan to what we were doing, you, know, you really were kind of, working things out as you go because obviously it's not often that anyone has to do this sort of thing I, I don't think there's anything in hindsight that would necessarily would would have changed a lot of it was just feeling things out as you go and GSA were fantastic and they really had thought through what they wanted from our work and from the archaeologists' work and I think the project just kind of evolved as you go along so whilst there's maybe things that we changed throughout the project and we did do things differently for example um, they would had a decision tree on kind of you know, what items they were kind of were really keen to look out for and keep um, decisions sort of changed along the way of what you do with things. It was a very kind of evolving process. So I think it'd be quite difficult to say, oh, we would have done that differently because you, you didn't know until you did it. And nothing jumps out as a major thing that we would have done differently. So I think it all went went really well. Cool. So that was a long very long-winded way of saying, <laughs> no, I didn't think so. <laughs> but <laughs> nobody thinks it. <laughs> Yeah. I just remembered, actually, the one thing I wasn't prepared for was needing quite so many uh, plastic boxes. <laughs> <As> many <laughs> cheap, from the 99p shop or whatever, you know, as many cheap boxes as you can. Um, yeah, we got through so many boxes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so is that your top tip?
3: <laughs> yeah, top tip, get as so many of those boxes as you can, the kind of underbed stores. yeah. Oh, wow, them. big ones. <laughs> yeah, we got through hundreds of them because was, everything basically came out in those boxes um, with a context number. And we had to sort for you know, we're just sort of sorting through them all. So it's sort of a case of, um, yeah, really getting your eye in. Because when you look at a box of material that's charred, everything just kind of looks the same. So I think from a kind of conservation point of view, where you're used to looking at different materials, you start to get your eye in and sort of seeing, oh, that's wood, that's plaster, that's paper. You know, it's quite often there's also materials like... Um, Uh, expanding foam and stuff like that stuff that you you know you'd expect to sort of see within kind of the walls and that kind of thing and once that gets burnt it can suddenly look like really it can form interesting shapes or kind of (laughs) um you know into interesting textures and goes amazing colors and that kind of thing and you might get people come up to you going oh we found something really interesting and you look at it and go, "Mm, oh no I'm pretty sure that's just yeah a bit of foam or something (laughs) sort of using your sort of material identification skills I think of sort of um knowing what you're looking at and just sort of being able to sort of sort the wheat from the chaff as it were so that was quite yeah it was quite challenging but yeah good fun from the conservation point of view because you never get to see quite so many material types all in one go quite often <laughs> and you said hundreds of these boxes where where did you store all this stuff uh so basically uh, we were able to facilitate, uh, facilitate ourselves in um the Macintosh building basically we had a great system where the archaeologists worked in the library and then through there there was a large mezzanine area where it was able to um, have a section for um, myself and a couple of technicians working through the finds and then also a section for the archaeologists who did a lot of the recording particularly of um, sort of the large wooden timbers and that sort of thing so we had quite a big production line of work going on to make sure everything worked smoothly to sort of process everything as sort of quickly as we could it's a very very repetitive job so it's a case of really making sure that everything is as streamlined as possible and you've got lots to do and so that you also have a backup of work to do so for example like I said some days it might be windy or um, if the weather's particularly bad and people can't get in because we was working from November so it was not the nicest time of year to be working in uh, it was a case of making sure that we always had something to be getting on with and getting the work was being processed um, because some things you could get through really quickly um, and other things sort of were just a lot more time consuming to record and um, so yeah, so it's just kind of planning planning the work and um, was quite important
2: so any advice for anyone um, finding themselves in the same position
3: um I think just having a really good plan, but being really prepared for it to need to be flexible because. There's so many stakeholders in place, there's so many challenges that will come up, it would be impossible to sort of do everything to the letter. Um, so I think it's a, just keep an open mind, be flexible, but have a good plan in place to get started with. Um, sort of just being really prepared, having all your materials and everything that you need ready to carry out the work, especially like you said, like for a freezer, having everything in place just in case, like your standard kind of kit that you would have had for your disaster planning. Um, and... Making sure you've got plenty of time, you know, if if you can get it, it's it's a really (laughs) time-consuming process, and it can only go as fast as it can. Um, So yeah, having the time and being prepared, I think is all you can do. And and the rest of it, you really just have to um, use all your skills to think on the spot and be flexible. Also, just people skills because you're working with so many different people, and there's a lot of either there's a lot of emotion because you have people stakeholders that are connected to where. The disaster may take place, but you also have people that are contracted in to do quite specific jobs in specific timeframes. Like um, you might have principal contractors looking after the property, and their priorities might be different to your priorities. For example, making sure well, obviously, priorities to make sure the building safe, but they may have other things in their timeline that they need to meet. That um, so it's a case just make sure that you have really clear communication and that you um, set up these good relationships from the outset, so that everybody can can get their jobs done. I think yeah. Hmm. As I've sort of mentioned before, one of the main things that I've particularly enjoyed about um, working on this project was just getting to work with all the creators and really getting a close input from them. Yeah, I think as much as the work on this project was obviously based around the salvage and, and sort of conservation and finds processing, the relationships that you formed with the people were probably just equally as important. And um, the really key part of the job was constantly communicating with GSA and making sure that we're sort of meeting what they wanted and, and keeping them informed because it is such a sensitive sort of project. So I think that was, yeah, it was really rewarding to work with them and sort of something to take out of it was just those sort of relationships and all those unexpected things, yeah, that form that you're not expecting to when you're going to do, to do a job.
2: Well, Natalie Mitchell, thank you very much for talking to The Sea today.
0: Oh no, problem, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think that's it for Salvage right now, and now we're gonna listen to one of my book reviews. Hooray. Today I'm going to review Refashioning and Redress, Conserving and Displaying Dress. This is a book that um I was lent a copy of by Nadine Wilson. Thank you so much, Nadine. Um Basically, I wanted to review this because even though I'm an objects conservator, I've worked a surprising amount with um, dress recently. Um, And not just recently, it kind of started back in 2014 when I was working on the Silent Partners exhibition at the Fitzwilliam. And uh, it's just kind of kept going since then. So this has now become a theme in my life that uh, very much dress, costume, clothing... Uh, keep appearing, so I thought, oh, this will be a really good book to review, um, and you know what? I was right about that. This is a high-quality paperback volume with full-colour images throughout. It has 256 pages and has a whopping 17 papers in it. Um, it's a collection of papers that are carefully edited, and they come from all over the world. Um, Basically, we go on a slight world tour with this book. It's got a healthy mix of papers written by conservators, curators, artists and designers, but they form a really good, coherent ensemble. The editors have set out to explore the what and the how of both treating and exhibiting dress and to stimulate discussion of how we can achieve these things. From philosophical topics such as biographical clothing and the human form to more practical matters such as pressure mounting and how to deal with heavily fragmented garments, this book actually covers a lot of ground. Um, I was really excited by all the things that I learned. I repeatedly annoyed everyone around me as I was reading this because I shared snippets throughout the chapters, which I think is a good measure of how engaging a book of case studies really can be. Uh, the editors are the very same who brought us Changing Views of Textile Conservation in uh, 2011, and their uh, steady editorial hand ensures there is a clear conservation voice throughout the volume. While this is a cross-disciplinary publication that, that can be enjoyed by museum professionals across the board, it's definitely meant for conservators. But I guess the important bit here: it can appeal to all conservators, not just textile specialists. It explores some inherently fascinating concepts about the human shape and fashion and the memory of clothes without being either boring or oversimplifying. As a solitary uh, objects conservator, I found this incredibly helpful. I particularly appreciate that the authors shared their decision making processes and sometimes even their sources of inspiration. I mean, who knew that couture retailers could inspire the way a museum displays their dress, for example? And also I loved reading about concepts I hadn't really considered, like using the museum as a catwalk, uh, or what kind of story a garment can tell, particularly if it's been used in something as horrifying as a political assassination. Um, basically, with was emphasis on collaboration and dialogue between departments and stakeholders. This is actually a refreshingly inclusive and positive publication with plenty of good ideas. It certainly won't have you in stitches, but... It'll help unravel some mysteries of working with dress in a museum context. Um, while I occasionally wish there were even more images, I definitely found it both helpful and inspiring. Um, I think it's well worth a look. As I said, uh, Refashioning and Redress is edited by Mary Ann Brooks and Dinah D. stop It's published by the Getty Conservation Institute in 2016. And uh, you can buy it straight from the Getty Web Shop, where it is $65 plus shipping. Uh, or you can, if you're in the UK, buy it uh, from Amazon, where it is, at the time of review, £38.99. And uh, yeah, well worth a look. I highly recommend it if you've ever had to deal with dress and costume in, in, your, in your collections. Thanks very much for listening. As usual, if you have any comments, questions, or corrections, we would love to hear from you. Uh, This time, I thought we would talk about two things. Uh, First of all, David Lee has uh, emailed us and uh, pointed something out about our first episode. It's quite fitting that we're talking about the first episode on the last episode of the season.
1: Um, of life,
0: <laughs> yeah uh about our demographics episode uh and that is that obviously the survey that we're talking about in that episode of conservators it's not necessarily representative of the profession because it's only been answered by so many people obviously it doesn't represent every conservative because not every conservative responded hint respond to more surveys conservators um <laughs> and he said it would be really interesting as well to get more of a detailed breakdown on how the gender uh how the genders split across different subcategories of oh, conservatives absolutely. Yeah. because he said i feel like textile conservatives are mostly female and i feel like furniture conservatives are mostly male and he said i could be wrong about that but it would be interesting to see how the numbers break down in these different groups and also the age ranges are the ones which don't really attract uh, any young new conservators, and is that going to be a problem? That sort of thing. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely. And I suppose there are there are areas of conservation, sort of specific specialisms, conservation that have yeah. developed because they are they have been um, inhabited by individuals who were, you know, engineers. So typically, you know,
0: industrial industrial
1: usually male engineers going into conservation and they are they tend to be the people who can rebuild things and make things work again mm-hmm. in um the science mm-hmm. and, and industrial types of collections
0: similarly we have some very very new types of conservation fields like uh time-based
1: media which i still don't Ooh, understand what that is um i have yeah we'll have to talk about that <laughs> another time because i yes. have been looking into that as well but also uh as you know referenced in the at the beginning of the episode contemporary art as well Indeed. Um, is that mainly inhabited by um people who are interested in contemporary arts and who are they are they are they women men you know yeah quite
0: so there's quite a lot to explore there i would love if there were if there was more research done on this But I think we always need the professional bodies to be on top of this and, you know, help us do the research, I think.
1: Yeah, I think there's only so much we can, um, I think if we were to put out a survey ourselves, it would be less well taken up than the survey that's already been done. Yeah, yeah, And then it would, you know, the selection process would be wildly biased towards people who listen to podcasts. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly, yes. Uh, which is already
0: like a specific age range, et cetera, et cetera, um, But yes, I would love to see more on this, uh, just as I would love to see um, a survey on emerging professionals and who they are and what their worries are and stuff like that. So yes, but then I love surveys, so I would think that. Now, speaking of surveys, uh, at the same time that we put out our social media survey, Uh, Elspeth Jordan also put out a social media survey aimed at conservators, which was hilarious and wonderful timing. Um, and hers had, had a much better uptake than ours did. She got way more responses than we did. So I thought, uh, we would, she very kindly shared, uh, her data with us. And I thought we'd just have a really quick chat about, uh, basically comparing notes, how hers, how her results were different from ours and uh, how they were similar, etc. So her survey was very similar to ours, although hers had more questions, and they did ask slightly different things. She had a similar age range to uh, our respondents, Uh, so people were predominantly 25 to 34, 35 to 44, that sort of age range. She also asked if people are emerging conservators, and 44% said yes they were
1: that is interesting
0: yes but that still means that more than half said no they weren't they were already established conservators possibly or they weren't emerging anyway they didn't self-identify as emerging so yes that is interesting but i almost would have expected it to be more emerging conservatives than oh, established really? ones yeah because everyone's trying to get in on it everyone's trying to profile race i personally i love if it's you know i I'd like to think that there are loads of established conservators out there picking up social media. That will be ace because that is the way it should be. But I think there's quite a lot of new people who are trying to get in and yeah, I trying suppose so. So the selectionists, they, yeah. they start as students maybe, and that sort of thing because they already do social media as part of their lives, that sort of thing. I mean, in some ways, that's you know how I got started. I do social media anyway, so I add conservation to it. So I I kind of see that as a natural progression. She asked, "What kind of conservator are you?" That's not something we asked. Most of the the respondents were institutional, as opposed to private practice. Uh, Quite a few were students. Uh, I don't think she got any retired ones. She got a few unemployed and a couple of, mm, not a conservator. (laughs) Uh, So this is interesting. She also asked what social media platforms uh, people used. And similar to us, there were a lot of Facebook users and Twitter users, but she had way more Instagram users than we did. Instagram was relatively low for us. But Instagram was uh, the second highest Oh wow, uh, amongst hers. So that's really interesting because I did notice that people on Twitter did say that they were surprised there weren't more Instagram uh, users, according to our survey. But that's just because we have a smaller pool of people, so it's less representative. Uh, she also included YouTube and Snapchat in hers, which uh, we didn't do. So that was interesting. Loads of people on YouTube, but I suspect as users rather than content generators. I suspect, anyway. Uh, do you use social media to share conservation content? Yes, 86. No, nearly 87% uh, said that yes, they do, which is so pleasing. Well done, people. Yes. Uh, another question was, do you share current activities or past work on social media? About 50% said both. And uh, another 27-ish percent said only current activities. And I thought that was interesting. I think, personally, I think I try to stay current but that's possibly because I had different employers before and I feel like I'm a bit mean if I share something from a previous employer because I feel like I can't check with them if they're okay with that.
1: Yeah, I suppose it's less a, oh, look at this exciting thing that I'm doing now. It's more like I was amazing a year ago. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I I also feel like
0: yeah no i guess i feel like it's not really my story to tell anymore if i'm not there conservator. yeah that's a good point yeah but i would probably feel really different about that if i was in private practice for example
1: yeah because then you're more sort of the 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 tooting of your own horn is more you know yeah it's supposed to be doing it yeah exactly game yeah exactly
0: yeah yeah Yeah, it's interesting uh when you share conservation content what kind of account do you use this is similar to what we did about half of the respondents used a personal account. Uh, some people had both personal and institutional, and again, some people just used an institutional one. Who is the intended audience for your conservation social media content? We this
1: did is an interesting. We didn't ask. An we didn't really go, it? ask
0: that. Really, uh, most people said general public.
1: Although, like
0: thirty-two percent said other. Please specify, and I don't know what those other things are. So I'm so curious. <laughs> who, 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 who is that then? <laughs> Uh, or is it just that it's a mix of them? Maybe maybe it wasn't a multi multi-selection thing. Um it's hard to say. But um forty-two percent said the general public, so that's pretty interesting. Do you find there are benefits of sharing information on social media versus traditional methods such as journals and distribution lists? Yes, oh thank Christ. <laughs> um 93% said yes to that. oh excellent. Do you use social media to find conservation content? Yes, 77% Yay. said yes. That makes me happy as well. Have you implemented knowledge found on social media in your practice? Uh, 57% said yes. And I thought that was jolly interesting because it's something we kind of hinted at a little bit uh, in our survey, but we didn't outright to ask it. Um, so I just thought that was really heartening that uh, people actually take on board things that they
4: find.
1: I like that it's a sort of um, free and open sharing of information. Though, of course, we get to the problems that we were talking about in our episode with um, a little knowledge can be dangerous. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. If your audience is conservation, then it's, you know, you've got to assume a, a level of understanding and knowledge that will this will add to rather than...
0: Well, it's interesting. And, of course, you have to be uh, source critical with everything, and I get that you might not be writing your dissertation and citing tweets. Um, <laughs> you might be if you are, please let me know. That would be awesome. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess I get that there are different levels of these things, but I am happy that we are doing more sharing. And thank you so much to Elspeth for, um, sharing her uh, data with us. We really loved it. Thanks so much. It seems like we our our surveys are mostly in, in agreement on some of the big points, which is really nice. So Thanks, Elspeth. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word, and you've been listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time. Oh, I we know. We're not doing that. This is the last one. Oh my god. about uh, that. I got all excited. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, So that means that we should actually say this is the end of the season.
1: Yeah, oh my god. Uh, Do you want to say anything? Can you think of anything? So guess what? It's the end of the season. We've done 10 episodes. And uh, when we started this, I don't really think that I imagined that we'd get to episode 10 just because you know life gets in the way uh and everybody's loved it so thank you so much everyone for listening and sharing and interacting with us it's been amazing
0: and please keep it up because you know we're not going away
1: yeah no sorry we're not gonna we're, we're here to stay for at least a little while now so sorry about that um <laughs> we will be starting to record episode uh season two and later this year so we're looking forward to that but from us for now it is goodbye for a few weeks mm-hmm. um, and we've loved it we are still completely open to ideas for episodes
2: um, people who want to be interviewed that would be especially welcome and people who want to review stuff and so on so do also get in touch if you'd like to get involved
0: absolutely that would be lovely but yes please do get in touch also get in touch if you have something of yours that you would like us to review um that can be books or equipment or materials or anything um, yeah they're good let us know uh, we're always up for suggestions for reviews see you in season two everyone
1: yeah bye have a nice summer
0: yeah enjoy it
1: patreon shout out
0: welcome to jessica who's our latest patron if you'd like to join us on patreon you can go to patreon.com slash the c word and join us for more awesome stuff Thanks, Jessia. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word, and you've been listening to Christina Roseig, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenna Mathiason. You can check out our website at thecword.show, tweet us at thecwordpodcast, or simply email us on thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. This has been a Wooden Dice production.
1: Okay.